One of our unsung heroes of, of endurance sports uh, is a person I'm going to get a chat, chance to chat with tonight. And when you look at the history of endurance sports, you think about a three-time Olympian, you think about a Pan American Games gold medalist, you think about a guy who did the first ever race across America, the Ram, and finished second in that. Guy who came over to the 1980 Ironman, it was only the third year of the event, got third that time and came back a year later as a, when he came over in 1980, he was the cyclist of the 70s, who's an amazing cyclist. By 81, he was a triathlete and became the best. He became the Ironman world champion in 1981. Give it up for Mr. John Howard. How you doing, John? I'm doing great, Bob. So I want to start out with kid from Missouri. That thing should be on. Kid from Missouri. How does a kid from Missouri get into cycling at a world-class level? Lots of hard work. Uh, How did you even find, you know, because I, I, it's I not like you went on the internet back then. It's an interesting story, Bob. I, I had a, uh, my mentor was a guy named Ray Florman out of St. Louis, Missouri. And, and Ray uh, had one, one, one uh, arm and he placed fourth overall. Keep this guy up to you. For the uh, 1956 Olympics. Okay. So that was well before there were any challenged athletes. And if you wanted to be at the top or make the Olympic team, you had no choice but to compete against able-bodied athletes. That's all changed thanks to you and others. But uh, Ray was my first uh, real guidepost, and I look at him now. He's he's long gone, but you know what? I I think it's it's time to recognize athletes who were at the top of their sport and, and have brought people like me around. So when you're you're in Missouri and trying to find out how do you get into the higher level of this sport and, and finding out that you're actually good enough to be at that highest level. How did, how did that happen? Uh, I explored as many sports as I could in early on just to, to try to find out what I, I knew that I was a decent runner but not a great runner. Um, I always felt like I needed a little bigger gear. <laughs> uh, so cycling was what I gravitated toward right off the bat. And it was something that uh, I could do and do well. When did you realize you could be really good at it and be race at a national level? Oh, back in the in the '60s, uh, I rode with the American Youth Hostel group, and that was, of course, a touring group. And uh, I found myself pulling away from all these people, and uh, so I think I might, might want to look at racing as a possibility. And fortunately, I found Ray, and he pushed me in that direction. So the, the, really the main thing at the time was the Olympics when, you, when yeah. it came to cycling. Yeah, there was not much more than that. Uh, cycling took a nosedive after about 1915, 1920. It was still very popular at, at the New York six-day races, but uh, in the 30s and the 40s, uh, it, it slid and then rediscovered... Um, well, I, 
I had something to do with that. Yes, we you did. We were the first international team to race abroad. Right. Uh, and I, I won my first national championship in, in 1968. And 68 was also the year of the Olympics in Mexico City. Right. And what a lot of people don't realize is that there were – there was a, a lot of chaos going on before the 68 Olympics in Mexico City because I think it was like, was it 10 days before the Olympics? And th this was not a very viral world at that point. So before the 68 Olympics, I think there was college students who were very unhappy that the country of Mexico was spending all this money to bring the Olympics there when there was people who were homeless and people who needed food. And people were not rioting, just marching in the streets yeah. and were gunned down by the Mexican government, basically yeah. shot down. I, I know about that because the next morning uh, we started a bicycle race from the Plaza de los Tres Culturas in Mexico City. It's part of the Olympics. Yeah, and there was blood in the gutters, literally. 250 students were machine gunned by a group of of. Uh, federales, basically. Federales, basically. Um, and that happened. That actually happened. And it was buried. The press buried it. Uh, and it has taken over 40 years to bring the Diaz-Ortiz administration to justice. Uh, but it's it's finally taken place, and if you Google Mexico 68, that's the thing you'll pick up first at what happened at the Olympics. And, of course, uh, my next one was Munich. And well, but let's go back a little before, before we get to Munich. <laughs> so you were racing in 68, and you were in your pit getting ready to race. Oh, yeah. Right? And so this, this became very close to home to you, what had happened, because what happened in the pit? Uh, I was pumping my, my tires up, because I like to do that myself, and I was trying to get maximum pressure out of the Criterium Seda Extras, and, and just as I was making the last pump, I heard an explosion, and I turned around, and there was this, this person who had put a revolver in his mouth and the back of his head, exploded in my face right before you go right in the race before i was due to start the 100 kilometer team time trial and i started that race with blood all over the wait wait white so shirt. they didn't cancel they no. didn't postpone in mexico they don't do that this is the this is the showcase event of our lifetime so yes. they don't have any reason to cancel it, the soldiers came out and draped their trench coats and newspapers over the corpse, and that was the way it was done. And you went and raced? We raced, right. Uh, is there, I mean, that had to affect you. Well, it, it, I, I, I had a job to do, and I was committed to doing that job because that was what I did. Uh, another member of the team, um, uh, Butch Martin was off the back in 10 kilometers. Yes. He he. So we rode the we rode the race with three riders, and of course that had a huge effect on our performance. Right. Uh, we made up for it in in Munich, but the, our yeah Munich the next next time around. But the the point is that uh, things like that 
couldn't happen any, again, I don't no. think in this, at that scale, because that too was pretty much buried. Anything that had to do with bad publicity in 1968 was buried. So then you look at 72 and you've got the Israeli situation yeah. that there. Was, that was one that nobody could get around. The Black September raid on the village, the circumstances. Uh, wonderful film uh, called Munich by uh, Steven Spielberg, who, who yes. did an incredible job of replicating exactly what happened and how Golda Meir took it upon herself to avenge yes. the disaster. So 68, 72, 76, and you're, you're doing the Olympics in, in all three. You're, you're, team Tom Trolley guys were 20th in 68, 15th in 72, 19th in 76. Had you thought about, because at that point, there hadn't been uh, American racing in the Tour de France. Is that something that you thought about? Uh, I thought a lot about it, uh, and was my sponsor, Raleigh, uh, on the pro level in Europe, the T.I. Raleigh team was the top team in, in the Tour de France for three or four years running. Yeah. And uh, I was offered a, a, a position on the team, uh, but I turned it down. I just said, that's not what I really want to do. I want to focus on domestic racing and try to build the, the brand, so to speak. To build American cycling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then that, of course, led to triathlon, but... So before that, so you're you're doing uh, you're you're thinking about potentially Tour de France, but you were also you know, some of the Europeans were coming over and racing here, and you were telling me something interesting when you guys were racing in Florida, I think, yeah. and it was like three or four or three top Americans. Uh, one, I think you had one of the Stetna brothers and yourself, mm -hmm. and then one of the European guys. Right, right, and, right. It was a top European pro, Willie Debosher, who was a great six-day rider. Uh, and Will, Dale Stetton and I absolutely worked him over because we were teammates. and we You would take turns surging we, on him. We would work him over. We just did what we needed to do to win the race. Dale finished first. Uh, Willie was second. I was third and in close proximity. Uh, and after it was over, Willie and I were sitting in a bar, and, and he was scolding me. He said, you, you, he said, you Americans, you have it all wrong. You use drugs for pleasure. We use them for business. <laughs> <laughs> so he was admitting. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't have any desire to race in the Tour de France after I heard uh, the, well, knew earlier you knew. on that, 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 that there were, uh, this is this, these aren't blood boosters at this point. These aren't steroids. These are amphetamines. Yes. And I don't know of any of the athletes who were top notch in my era who are still active or alive. Uh, the average age of a Tour de France professional rider is 54. When they die. Yeah. So why would I want to play that game? I I, yeah. I have I have every reason to believe that life is more important than that, and I'm at as old as I am now, 76, I'm starting to realize more and more how important the blue sky and the fresh air is. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but you know you could have made more money if you went to Europe. Oh, yeah. Well, Way more perhaps, money. But that didn't, that didn't matter. You've never been one of those guys. Money, it was about uh, the experience yeah. and, and building cycling in, in the U.S. Well, you didn't just build cycling, because when you think about it, the Ironman in 1978 had 15 starters and 12 finishers. Again, 79, 15 starters and 12 finishers. 1980 was the last year in Oahu. Mm -hmm. John comes over, 
and I was racing that year, and it was like, you know, it, it, it's, it's like Messi coming to the U.S. John Howard is coming to race the Ironman, this silly little event we were doing with 108 of us, and John Howard was a cyclist of the 70s, a three-time Olympian, overwhelming favorite. When they're interviewing you for ABC, they're like, John is, you know, he's, the, he's this great cyclist, and the cycling is the most important part of this event. He's going to win this thing. Going into it, how much swimming and running had you done? Uh, not enough, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> he was oh, not enough, yeah. Uh, well, wh what, what um, <laughs> there was one very balanced athlete in that race in 1980, and that was Dave Scott. Yeah. Who, who understood instinctively that you have to be balanced or you're not going to win the race, and I wasn't balanced. <laughs> Uh, I, I was a, I actually had a swimming background early on, but I got caught up in the coral and you know uh, it just it didn't it didn't go well. I was way way down after the the swim, and I chased uh, Dave and actually caught him at the very end of the race after I mean, like forty minutes or something, uh, and then uh, he just outran me. Yeah. He just outran me, and uh, I finished third. You got third. It was Dave Scott wins. Dave Scott had a 51-minute swim, a 5.03 bike, a 3.30 marathon, went 9.24. The course record was 11.15, so he basically took almost an hour off the course record. And then Chuck Newman got second, and John Howard got third. And I think, John, it's the only time I've ever been ahead of you in anything in my life <laughs> because your swim was an hour 51. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hour 51, but then John rode 428. And I was doing a little research on this. 428, no roads were blocked off. You had to get off your bike, what, at I least know, well, three times a, to get I weighed. A, I had a flat, too. You had, had a flat. Ch change a flat. Of course plan. you did. You had to get off your bike three times. We had weigh stations. You had to get off your bike to get weighed. If you lost 5% of your body weight, they pulled you out of the race. Oh, wait, wait but. I was eating Big Mac, so it wasn't a problem. 10%. But I was 10%. But for you, yeah, so 10% of your body weight, they pulled you out of the race. So you went 428. That time, when you look at the history of the Ironman, John went 428 in 1980. And, you know, the, John Howard had the fastest time in 81 when he went 503. The first time somebody went under that was 1993, was Jurgen Zak went 427 to get under your 428. And we're talking... 1980 till 1993. Well, that, that's also with the advent of modern equipment. Right, so and we also, using, yeah. We were using regular road bikes. That were, that's all there was. Exactly. Uh, what did you take away from that? Because obviously you, you're used to long-distance cycling. Um, but when I look at the how you change, so John Howard goes 151, and when you win it the next year, you swim 111. And... Your bike ride, you went from 428 to 503, but it's a Kona. It's a different course, right? It's windy, all the rest of that. But your run, you went from 413 in 1980 to 323. You, yeah. became, a, you became a triathlete. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the, what I mean by balance. Uh, you, you can't have a weak sport. You've got to be strong at all three. And you gotta, now, of course, you've got to be world class at all three. Yes, you do. Uh, at the time, uh, you didn't have to be world class to, to, to score. But uh, I knew this is something I enjoy doing. I don't think I can do it. And sure enough, I've got 
some leg length variances that have eventually uh, put an end to my running career. Right. So uh, what I do now is uh, a, a, a kind of uh, uh, admiration for all of you folks who, who can still train and enjoy the, the process. And so I look at you as, as, uh, as my inspiration at this point. How did you change from 80 to 81? Obviously, you needed to improve your swim. You needed to improve your run. Did you, did you, is that when you moved to San Diego? Yes. Yeah, I lived in Houston, Texas, and it was, there were no triathletes in right. Houston, Texas. And, you know, I swam at the Jewish Community Center. I biked in Memorial Park, and that's about the only place you can ride in Houston. And I also ran in in Memorial Park. So I had little places that I would go to practice my skill set, but I was training upwards of 40 hours a week to, to win Ironman, and that was my objective. So in 81, when you're dealing with uh, getting ready for that race, you were having a foot problem, pretty serious foot problem. Uh, yeah. I was reading in Mike Plant's book that sounded like you had 60 cortisone shots in your foot a leading lot. into that race. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, and, and it was the only thing that got me through the race. Uh, uh, had, to, had to do it. Uh, I would, would never abuse my body like that again, but it was either that or, or go home. Right. It was that simple. And the, the, when I crossed the finish line in, in Kona, that, I didn't run again for three months after that. Wow, the foot was that messed up. It was, it was seriously damaged, yeah. So when you so here you are cyclist of the 70s then you win the Ironman right you you're a perfect uh, the fact that you could look in the mirror and say okay I can't win this as a single sport person I've got to go and become a triathlete and then you become the best mm -hmm. then was you were still doing triathlon um, but this other thing started in 1982 called Race Across America yeah, yeah. and it's basically starting in Santa Monica you ride to the Empire State Building in New York, right? And basically, it's 3,000-some miles. And <laughs> the interesting part about it, it had never happened before. ABC Wild World of Sports had covered the Ironman, so they decided, well, we're going to cover this new thing. And I remember Jim Lampley was the commentator, and Jim went up to one of the guys. Uh, Lon Haldeman. Went yeah. up to Haldeman and said, so, Lon, were you going to ride like, you know, two, three hundred miles and then you guys will stop for dinner, take a nap? And he goes, no, we're starting in Santa Monica. We'll sleep when we get to Empire State Building. And so he had to go back to the team and the ABC team and say, if they're not sleeping, we're not sleeping. We're basically covering this thing nonstop, 24-7 until yeah. they get there. Yeah, that's exactly the message. <laughs> yeah. What, and they, and they, they won awards for that. Uh, they did. That telecast, yeah. So it was, you end up getting second. And it was you, Michael Shermer, Lon Haldeman, um, and John, John, Moreno. John Moreno. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and when you guys came up with this whole concept of going across, was the thought, we are going to go nonstop? Or was it originally, we're going to? Uh, no, we, we knew going no. in that this is a non-stop event and no this roads is, are blocked this again is a, this is a time trial and yes whenever you're sleeping somebody else is moving forward what was the hardest part about that because you hadn't done anything like that before um 
No, I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, and uh, <laughs> pro, pro, no, lack of, of preparation, proper preparation was, was uh, you know, I, we just didn't know. It was like the Iron Man going in. We had no idea what, what was doable and, and what we could get away with, and, and uh, there were no, there, the doctor said, under no circumstances will any of you put IVs in your arms. You will finish this race, or you will not finish this race. And that's how it was in August. Oh, August, August. going across the country. Worst possible time of the year to do it, and it was brutal. It was brutal. I, I think it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I remember going to breakfast with you after that event back in San Diego, and you paralysis put, in both hands he, we yeah. had to prop the fork in his hand because his fingers were because they've been on the handlebars for 3,000 miles and <laughs> could not open and close your hands yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably should have had surgery on that but I didn't <laughs> I mean it but the the thing that sort of connects the dots from the Olympics to the Ironman to race across America and then we'll get into the Bonneville Snowflex. You like challenges. You like new things that are going to push you to maybe a level that you can't handle. I, I do and and I think the 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 real uh, drive is 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 toward the success of the moment and that one second, I did it, I got it, I did it. I'm now move on to something else. And I, I just, I've always believed that uh, that's what life is all about, pushing your personal limits to the absolute max. And athletically, that's what I've done. That's what I'm, well, we'll get into the book later. Yes. But uh, the, f the focus has always been just that, is push one's limits. And I wrote a book called Pushing the Limits. <laughs> So when you, when you finish the race across America and you get second, is the thought, okay, I'm going to come back next year and win it, or I can check that thing off because I don't no, never have to that, do that again? That was a check off. I had no desire to put myself through it again. Uh, there, Smart move. There, this is part of the reason I didn't want to do the Tour de France, because there are things that build you as a person and, and, and physically and mentally and so forth. That isn't one of them. <laughs> And, and, and I just felt that it was harmful and that this is not, I, I just instinctively felt that's not the thing for me to be doing. What was the, the toughest part of Race Across America? <laughs> Hallucinations that I had during yeah. the process. I, I won't, you, you, you will think I'm on drugs if I tell you any of these stories, but it was bizarre to say the least and sleep deprivation does that to you and and it's par for the course uh and uh, every anybody who's ever done ram will tell yes. you pretty much the same thing and, and no matter how good your nutrition is and how well prepared you are you still will hallucinate so one of the weirdest things i've seen at that race across america is when people's neck muscles stop working and they run a two by four up the back of their head and duct tape it around your forehead to keep your head up because otherwise it would droop and you'd run into stuff. When yeah. you're doing that, I think you're in the wrong sport, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's like well, the silliest I, thing ever. Let me ever. add to, to that, uh, Bob, uh, the, one of my 
good friends, Bob Breedlove, did exactly that. He didn't, well, he didn't have a two-by-four, but he, he put his head down, and he was so comfortable on his bike, he literally went to sleep and ended up on the grill of a truck and, of course, was killed instantly. So this is the sort of stuff. There have been a number of fatalities yeah. in RAM. It is not safe, uh, but people still do it because it's an, a, an extreme challenge. It, it definitely is. Now, when you talk about extreme challenges, and you talk about, okay, I want to go 152 miles an hour on a bicycle across the Bonneville Snow Flats. Uh, talk a little bit about, because you are a thrill-seeking type of guy. Yeah. You, you like things that are a little crazy. I've seen you hang gliding out at, at when we were out. We used to yeah. ride our bikes out, and we still do, Pine Valley, and here comes John and his hang glider. I'm like, where'd you, where'd you start? Oh, top of Mountain Laguna. I'm like, oh, up at 6,000 feet, and he's landing right by us, riding our bikes. Talk a little about the draw of going to Bonneville and just the challenges, because there's the challenges of you're riding behind a race car, mm-hmm. you, the, the amount of dollars you have to raise to do this thing, and just the danger of you go down at 150 miles an hour, you're not getting up. Yeah. Well, we like to think this, this game has started in 1899 with uh, uh, Mile-A-Minute Murphy, Char- Charlie Murphy, who was a, a, a strong professional bike racer who paced behind the Long Island Express train. It was a, a, it was a railroad promotion, yeah. a big one, and they laid board, a board track down between the rails, and Charlie actually got to 60 miles an hour wow. and uh, that so it's been the, the ante's been going up ever since and uh, I, it, but it's only only been broken 11 times before I did it and uh, no not even that less than that and, yeah uh, so what I wanted to do is 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 bury uh, dr. Alan Abbott's uh, world record back in 1973 and we did that I, 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 I cut to the chase we broke it went 152 miles an hour what was his record yeah uh, 139 oh you crunched it yeah, yeah. Uh, but the but the but to me the the real gratification was coaching Denise Mueller to break my record and 180 she, something 183.9 was what she <laughs> uh, first 147 behind the Hohen Range Rover and then with a on a with a rail dragster that we built for her, uh, she went 183.9 miles an hour. It was an all women's crew too. I wanted I wanted women in charge, right? And so the 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 uh, best driver we could find. We we tried to get Danica Patrick, but she wasn't wasn't available. We got uh, Shay Holbrook, who's mm. every bit as good a, as a sports car driver. Uh, and she paced, and she was really the spark plug that put put Denise in the record books. So, talk a little bit about you're behind a race car, right? The race car has a area built like a vacuum, where you're in it, right? Yeah. And then the car gets up to a certain speed, and then you disconnect so that you're actually pedaling. Yeah, the, the gear is so large. Uh, four, what is a gear? 460-some-odd inches uh, that we needed to break the record. <laughs> Denise's gear was even bigger than that. And you, you sit as close to the... Uh, I didn't have the advantage of tucking my wheel into the fairing the way she did, but uh, so I had to work harder. Right. Uh, but uh, it's, it's an 
uh, again, very dangerous. Uh, if, the, if the wheel touches the fairing, you're going down. And when you go down at that speed, you might not get up. And didn't you flat in one of the? I had a, a blowout, yeah, on the on the uh, rear. Fortunately, it was on the rear. How yeah. fast were you going? Uh, about 140. <laughs> 140 rear, miles an hour. Rear, How'd you keep tire, it up? Uh, just big serpentine swirls in the salt. I I knew what to do. I, I had practiced everything. <laughs> you were prepared. I was ready. Yes. <laughs> so when you get through. Ironman, Ram, and then 152 on the Bonneville Soft Flats. Do you, do you start looking for more challenges? Well, coaching, coaching. I wanted to uh, help other athletes. We right. have proud to say we've had 164 national champions, uh, 11 world champions, and three Olympic gold medalists that I've worked with or, or my staff has worked with since 1983. So talk a little bit about, uh, for people, back in the early 1900s, six-day races were a big thing. They were, they were bigger than, and besides, even baseball, basketball, there yeah. really weren't other sports. Well, six-day racing was a huge sport in this country. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, that puts it in perspective, Bob. Uh, it, cycling was bigger than baseball, uh, but for all the wrong reasons. And I, I can explain that yeah. later. But uh, what happened was that the six-day races opened it all up. Uh, high bank tracks, riders going uh, blistering fast around those tracks. And finally, uh, uh, they started racing on the road. And uh, uh, all this was happening in Europe. And then it, over here, it became uh, even more popular. Right. So uh, there were over 200 bicycle tracks in, in uh, 19, or 1896. How many? Over 200. In the U.S.? Yeah. Uh, from uh, San Francisco to the Salt Palace in, in uh, Salt Lake City, uh, uh, tracks all up and down the, the, the eastern seaboard. Was it a relay type of thing? There would be one no, no, person no, no, going no. six these days? Were, these were high bank bicycle tracks. Right. Not called velodromes here. They were called tracks. And they were... Um, uh, they brought big spectators uh, appeal. And would you ride for 24 hours? Oh, no, no, no. The, uh, uh, we've lost touch. <laughs> they didn't race 24 hours or 48 hours or six days. They would do short, explosive sprints. Oh. So, so what came about from the six-day races is shorter races. Ballistic. 100 meter, 200 meter, uh, a mile would have been a long So way. six days of stuff. Yeah, okay. but they would feature sprinters who would right. come in, and uh, the endurance riders were on one side, and the sprinters were on the other. And one of the top sprinters was our our uh, major Taylor cyclist, Major Taylor. Yeah. Talk a little about because you obviously have been a Major Taylor fan forever and ever, and I think a lot of people really don't know much about Major Taylor, and probably one of the first African American uh, sports heroes. Well, we're going to we're going to learn a lot about Major Taylor with John's brand new book, book, which you can order, by the way, on a pre-order on Amazon, right? Amazon, uh, Kindle, uh, Dorrance, also, uh, and very shortly we'll have a a uh, an audible version of it. Nice, uh, but Major Taylor was certainly the first acclaimed. Uh, 
African-American sportsmen. I think probably there was a, uh, a boxer who was, who was a welterweight boxer who was right up there, and then later Jack Johnson. Right. But Major Taylor was the first truly acclaimed African-American athlete. And I, I want to introduce Carrie and Mayotte. Stand up, folks, because they are the voice actors who are reciting the, the, uh, the role of Major Taylor and his wife, Daisy, and they are actually married. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> oh, thank you for being here. Yeah. That's very cool. And that, is that in the documentary? Uh, not, they, did, they didn't make the documentary, but uh, we have Todd Gould, who I believe is one of the best uh, documentary filmmakers in America, is doing a PBS documentary in February on Major Taylor, and I'm in it, so you'll, you'll, see, you'll see that. Uh, and we're also working on a feature film uh, with um, Clement Virgo is the director, uh, Kevin DeWalt is the producer, uh, at Mind's Eye Entertainment, and we're, we're, we're pounding the pavement on that one. We're, we're doing casting right now, and that's, we're trying to choose who we want to, to be in that film. So when I, when I was doing a little background on Major Taylor, born in 1878, uh, passed away in, in 1932, uh, considered by a lot a greatest American sprinter of all time? I'd say so. I think he was the best. Uh, his his 200 meter times would certainly indicate that on period equipment. So yeah, I think he was he was he had, at one time uh, uh, he in the day when you went to race in Europe, it took you two weeks to get there on a on a boat. Uh, and once Major Taylor got his legs, uh, he eventually beat all of the top European riders and in including the great uh, Edmond Jacqueline, who had a very contentious relationship with him. Uh, that's in, that'll be in the film. Uh, but the, uh, the real essence of this book, from my perspective, was that Major Taylor and I were both inducted into the United States Cycling Hall of Fame the same year. I'm not that old, but uh, he posthumously... So you didn't I, race him? No, I didn't. <laughs> but I literally caught a lot of his, his, because I started this project in the 80s, a lot of his uh, uh, people that owned him bikes or, or knew him, knew him well, including his daughter, Sydney, who yes. I spent weeks interviewing in Pittsburgh for the, for the book, uh, literally caught them in the closing months of their lives. Ugh. So what I've done is is recall a lot of the information uh, from Sydney's uh, interviews, and what I what I've attempted to do here is explain it in a uh, a form that it, I, I won't call I'll call it a biographical novel because that's what it is. Uh, we we decided that because there were already five uh, biographies, all of which I've used in this book, uh, that the biographical novel is the, is the direction to go. So that's the genre. We believe it's going to be a bestseller. We really are putting a lot of uh, emphasis on this book, and uh, I think people are going to start realizing that Major Taylor is a, an American hero, but a forgotten American hero, and uh, the the real 
key to that is he broke the color line in, in cycling when cycling was bigger than baseball 50 years before Jackie Robinson did it. So, uh, um, and how many years, uh, 1936 on Jesse Owens. Yep. So, so the, uh, the important thing is that we recognize this, this man. And he is acclaimed. Unfortunately, things didn't go well. He was the, probably the wealthiest uh, African-American in, in, in the world at one point. But his, uh, his direction was spiraling downward, and he died a pauper on the streets of Chicago in 1932, height of the Depression. So it, it's not a necess- it's an uplifting story, but it's also sure. uh, a, a difficult story to tell. But I think Renee and I have done an excellent job of doing that, and I highly recommend it. I can promise you, I, I'll read a blurb to you if you'd like. Okay, let's do that. PR, I hope it's in here. Yeah, he, so he won the world championship in 1899, won the gold there. Hey, turned pro at 18. I'm going to introduce Jody because she's had a lot to do with helping me structure this book and do a lot of the PR. Uh, Jody, sweetie, would you look in that uh, backpack and see if that piece of paper I had in there is? So he set world records from a quarter mile to two miles. Oh gosh, he 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 raced on a a gear that. Uh, was revolutionary in the, in the it was a uh, chainless sorry a chainless uh, drive system yeah I guess it's not here but I guess I can't read you what I had planned to read. I want to say real quick this book John's been working on forever use the microphone <clears throat> so the book the black cyclone is he's been working on forever and we tried to have the books actually published and have some hard copies here tonight. However, um, it's going to be another week. But they are on Amazon. This is the cover. You can go on Amazon. And anybody that wants to go on their smartphone tonight and purchase a book, they will get a bookmark personalized from John to add to your book. There you go. Nice. Thanks, Thank sir. you, sweetie. Yeah, well, I, I, I was planning to do a, a PR blurb, but it didn't, it's not going to happen, sorry to say. But, uh, yeah, the, the man was uh, uh, arguably the best uh, cyclist that we've ever produced in terms of sprint speed. Uh, but he did complete the New York Six Day uh, as a 18-year-old. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. And that... Uh, they said this will take all the speed out of your legs and you, you won't be a sprinter anymore. But it didn't. He actually excelled after age 18. But uh, one of the most difficult things for Major Taylor was dealing with the racism, which was absolutely intense in the 1890s. And Because uh, he's the only African-American out there. He, he so was, people can right. team up and take right. him out. Right. Uh, he was a personal friend of Jack Johnson, the, uh, the uh, boxer. Heavyweight champion. Uh, he, Jack Johnson wanted to race bicycles and actually did compete in a race in Houston, Texas. Uh, he was born in Galveston. And uh, he, he was starting to uh, 
to move up in the pack, crashed, hurt himself, and he said, I think I'm going to try something a little safer, which was boxing. <laughs> yeah. So, so <laughs> he also, he retired for a while. Uh, 1901 to 1904, he raced in Europe and Australasia, and then he spent two and a half years away, came back in 1907 to 1909. Uh, obviously very versatile, because mm -hmm. he could do all different distances. Well, he, what you, what's, not, what's not there is that he had a nervous breakdown. Oh, is that what happened uh, while he was out? Yeah, he had, uh, he had a very close close call in Savannah, Georgia, where uh, the Sons of the Confederacy pretty much railroaded him out of town. Uh, and then he was, he, uh, he, you got to remember, these guys were racing for a paycheck and a big one. This was a very big money sport. Uh, was there betting on that as there well? There was all kinds of things yeah. going on, nefarious behavior as well. But uh, what, you you have to realize is that when Taylor got on the bike, his personality changed considerably. He was, he was pretty much ruthless. He did what it took because they were, they would box him. They would, they would uh, try to keep him in a in a closed cell on the at the bottom track apron when when somebody else, uh, an, another top rider, would go off the front. Right. Usually in in pace with another rider. He had to break out of that, and he used his elbow. He was not a big man. He was uh, only 5'7", weighed about 175 pounds. But he was able to maneuver his bike in a way that is, has never been done again. Uh, his coach, Bertie Munger, trained him as a trick rider, and that was what he, he performed on vaudeville, actually. Uh, during the winter months, uh, with Charlie Murphy right. uh, on rollers, the the, the mile a minute Murphy, uh, that was a real difficult thing to do. To win a race meant that you had to work harder than anybody else, and that's one of the reasons he had a nervous breakdown. Retired, uh, came back to the to the U.S. Uh, from Europe, and uh, ha had a couple of good races after that, but finally retired, got a, a draft deferment in World War I uh, because he was a machinist. He was trained as a machinist, and he came up with some brilliant ideas for uh, uh, wheels during the, during the Depression, or actually uh, early on, mm -hmm. rubber was extremely difficult to, to get because right. it all came out of the jungles of South America, uh, natural latex. So uh, there was a shortage of rubber. The war effort took it all. Uh, so t Taylor came up with this absolutely brilliant idea of, of a spring wheel. He called it the Taylor tire. And it, had, it was radially, radially laced with springs. And each section was a small chunk of natural rubber. Mm. And it provided a suspension for the early cars, which were, you know, primitive at best, wagon technology. And what Taylor did was, uh, unfortunately, after spending a lot of money to put it into development, uh, somebody stole the patent. Of course they did. And that tire was produced but not by him so he lost a lot of money and when money was short right. to begin with 
So yeah, I mean, it was it, it was a spiral downward, but uh, a, a brilliant effort on his part to to stay at the top for almost twelve years, which was unheard of at the time. Well, I, th I think the book's going to be a huge success. It's yeah. gonna be, you should be very proud of that. He rode his first race at 13. <laughs> uh, a, a real prodigy. Uh, and, and, and won it. Actually won his first race. Uh, it was a handicap. And he beat uh, Walter Marmon, who was the uh, defending national mm -hmm. champion at the time. No, I'm sorry, uh, Indiana state champion. And uh, Marmon went on to develop the Marmon automobile, which was the first winner of the Indianapolis 500, the Marmon Wasp. And so there are all kinds of stories like this in the book, which uh, sort of painted a picture of, of Major Taylor, not just as a uh, top athlete, but also as a, as a brilliant inventor after the fact. So with the state of equipment in cycling now, if John Howard was coming into the sport of triathlon, these guys now are going, you know, 402, 404 for 112 miles. How fast would John Howard go on these pieces of equipment? I think it would be a struggle. I, I, the, the difference is that everybody that is in triathlon now is world class at the top of the sport. Right. Um, even the age groupers, I guess you could you'd make a strong argument for that. Uh, but uh, I, I think the margin would be considerably closer than it is now. When you moved to San Diego, because back then, um, you know, anybody who was a runner looked at triathletes as sort of, hey, they're half decent at three different sports. I'm sure the cyclists, the pure cyclists looked at us the same way and the swimmers looked at us the same way. But you were training on a regular basis with Molina and Scott Tinley and Mark Allen, and you could tell that these guys were world-class athletes. Oh, yeah. yeah, they were all good. They were all, they were all good at all three sports. Right. Yeah. yeah, and so I could see another generation coming up past where I was. Yes, yeah. and you, so training with those guys, did, did you train with those guys leading into the 81 race? Um, no, they, they weren't. They, they weren't, weren't together active. yet. No, yeah. no, they, they, no. Uh, uh, getting, <clears throat> getting the fastest bike split in '83, I believe it was, yep. meant that I had to beat Mark Allen, and I did. But uh, I, I cooked on the run. I was that was it. That was all I had. But I told Mark after I said, about another quarter mile, I think I could have got you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, had he, two IVs, one in each arm at the time. <laughs> That is great. So that was my last hurrah in and, and Ironman. I was done after that. I uh, went up against Frank Shorter uh, oh, for the, uh, Desert, the Princess. Desert Princess duathlon a couple of times. And and I still say that race was, was definitely swayed toward the runners. No question. <laughs> this was a race out in Palm Springs. It's called the Desert Princess. It had a 10K run that had what we call the dirt road from hell. It had a, like a three-mile dirt sec section on it, 40K or 60K bike, then followed by another 10K on that same road, uh, same bike, uh, same run course. And the cool part was John was 40 
and Frank was for it. Yeah. And so it was the two masters. Frank Shorter was the Olympic gold medalist in 1972 in the marathon. And here's the cyclist of the 70s, three-time Olympic uh, Olympian and Pan American Games gold medalist going up against each other. That became way more important than Scott Tinley, Scott Molina, and the other guys who were racing. <laughs> that was the race. Of, uh, we were out there covering that. I don't think we shot one photo of the leaders of the race. We were looking for those guys. <laughs> And then, so John had a good lead off the bike, and I think Frank caught you at about four and a half, five miles, something like that? Well, no, no. Uh, the first event was the run. Right. Yeah, and I was a couple of minutes uh, behind Frank, and I buried him on the bike. Right. But he was a good cyclist. He, he was. Good, he was yeah. I caught him and dropped him, and then we had that next that extra run the, uh, next other 10 that was it yeah I, I i he knows me out by a pretty small margin yeah it was pretty close but it was it was close it was, i think if the race had been structured differently it would have had a different outcome i love it <laughs> ladies and gentlemen how about a huge round of applause for mr uh, john howard thank you